I decided to do a second podcast on Protestant church interiors because I left out some of the most uh, striking and beautiful and memorable uh, low church or Protestant Episcopal interiors in our country. And these churches can be visited and they convey a, a lasting uh, memorial of, a, of an ethos and a spirit and a sort of horizontal um, clarity uh, to the expression of the Christian religion that um, uh, is in... Uh, contrast to the kind of norms that are considered um, almost unblinkingly universal and obtusely considered so, because uh, uh, there's a kind of failure in memory. I, I often wonder about that novel 1984 and how people are able to simply um, seem to pretend uh, ages and decades and groups of people have never existed who had sincere and um, uh, vital convictions just as much as we today do, but are now uh, forgotten and ignored, and it's as if, in a way, they never existed. And uh, this particular uh, group of churches reflects a, an approach to to, to the worship of God uh, that is unmediated and direct and pristine. And when it was good, it was very personal and um, immediate through these uh, spirit-born messages that were given from these high and beautiful pulpits. Obviously, it had a tendency also to be cerebral and, uh, as a result, academic and uh, lacking in kind of... Um, capturing the imagination. So no wonder these um, uh, churches were sort of swept away in the Oxford movement and in the kind of romantic desire to picture everything. And I understand that. But they did make a contribution, and they have something to tell us. And the thing that's most sort of important to me is simply the fact that they've been forgotten. It's as if these people, uh, these uh, people who never existed and no one seems to even want to know or practically know that this was a way of uh, of relating to faith that uh, that was widely held uh, in uh, our uh, world in a period not so terribly long ago. I'm going to just give a little gazetteer then of some of these churches so you can kind of picture them and think of them and possibly visit them when you're driving in your car up and down the East Coast from, uh, from uh, Boston, as it turns out, to Charleston, South Carolina. And the, um, let's take it from the top. Let's start in New England. You have, uh, in Boston two of these, uh, uh, Protestant church, uh, Episcopal interiors that are, are, uh, are, are connected with American history. The Old North Church, which is really Christ Episcopal Church, Boston, in an area that rapidly became Italian and, uh, uh, was a kind of um, ethnic uh, um, center of the best uh, calzones in Boston when I lived there. The Old North Church was uh, built in the early 18th century and is a typical large brick church with um, um, clear glass windows and was the scene of the famous one if by land, two if by sea, the the uh, warning to every Middlesex village and farm of the um, arrival of the British troops that culminated in the Battle of Lexington and Concord, the shot heard round the world. And this church still stands and has that great historical moment in its uh, legacy and is thus always to be preserved and uh, has a high pulpit slightly to one side of the uh, of the main uh, 
altar and um, the original altar table and a, uh, an, an 18th century or very early 19th century painting of Christ blessing the bread and the wine and uh, beautiful swags and Venetian windows. And it's uh, very... Um, um, white and clear and uh, my wife Mary one of the last things she ever did for her uh, father was to take him and escort him to a reunion of Marine Corps uh, officer reserves uh, Marine Corps reserve officers from World War II uh, almost all of whom had fought in the uh, Pacific theater and had seen a terrible combat in the Second World War and uh, uh, Mary took her dad uh, to Boston where the meeting was and it culminated in a memorial service in the Old North Church at which our uh, particular friend and former bishop, uh, the Right Reverend Paul Moore Jr., a man whom we were very close to and whom we loved and uh, was the preacher. And he was surprised to see Mary there and even more delighted to see her with her dad, a former comrade in arms in Guadalcanal. And uh, it was very right that that uh, uh, memorial service, uh, that touching group of, uh, of old men should remember uh, past comrades and past achievements achievements and past courage and past causes in the old North Church, which is a perfectly preserved uh, prototype of a low church Protestant interior, although at the time it was simply normative. You go a little bit across town in Boston and you get to the King's Chapel. Now the King's Chapel is probably the most distinguished or uh, most opulent uh, interior of this kind. It was built as a, an Anglican uh, church uh, and uh, was built to the highest standard with a particularly um, delicate uh, pulpit, slightly to the left of the altar area, but very massive and high, but a little bit more uh, raffiné than uh, some of the other ones. It wasn't a business day, day as usual. It was, a, it was a work of art. It is a work of art, and it now has a bit of a museum feel, and a lot of Episcopalians uh, kind of uh, turn up their noses at the King's Chapel, because in the uh, rise of the Unitarian Church in the early 19th century, where so many of the um, congregational Trinitarian churches became Unitarian, uh, King's Chapel was among them, and this very great Episcopal Church turned Unitarian, and is to this day, although it uses a kind of Episcopal prayer book liturgy. And um, this church, uh, which, as I say, has a slightly musty feel to it today, um, is a perfect, another perfect perfect preserved time capsule of, of uh, pulpit-based, uh, clear glass windows, unornamented uh, Palladian architecture that ref represents a sensibility of Protestant worship, which has largely been swept away in practice. Now, let's go uh, down the East Coast a little bit. I won't take you to New York. I've already talked about Pierre L'Enfant's altarpiece at, uh, at uh, St. Paul's Fulton Street uh, on... Uh, um, Lower Broadway in the Wall Street area of New York. I'd rather talk about Christchurch Dwaynesburg. Christchurch Dwaynesburg is the um, oldest uh, parish uh, building, uh, I think, in the Diocese of Albany. It's uh, about 20 miles or so west of Albany, and uh, it was built uh, for the Dwayne family uh, and uh, is now a working uh, church. And uh, uh, I knew the rector well there, a very fine fellow and his wife who did a great job. And uh, I found out where they were and I said once while speaking not too far from there hey any chance you could you could take me to this your church and and uh, show it show me around I've always wanted to go to Christchurch Dwaynesburg and lo and behold it worked out and Mary and I um, 
ferried there in our little caravan down to this church in the middle of the country. And it's, again, a typical example. You open the door and uh, you're immediately struck by the uh, eastward pulpit, a very large, tall, two-decker pulpit that is a a, a, a box uh, for the clerk of the parish or for the rector of the parish uh, while uh, reciting the service and reading the psalms for the congregation, and uh, then uh, the pulpit where the major part of the service or the most important part would be conducted, the sermon preached. And it is right up against a Venetian clear glass window, and it's very dramatic and high and commanding. And uh, right to the next, to the right of it, kind of a jumble, is the altar and a baptismal font, and uh, it, it looks a little bit like sort of an afterthought, but there it is uh, to the right of the center, kind of in the corner, and over the uh, altar is a small gallery for, in those days, servants uh, or possibly children, uh, and uh, the gallery is looking um, towards the pulpit, not towards the altar. And again, pulpit-based, simple worship, and you can see Christchurch Dwaynesburg with some interesting old heating pipes, and uh, it's a perfect example of this uh, uh, Protestant sensibility. Uh, You can see how it could become dry if the preacher got up there and just read some kind of a talk. It still happens, by the way. Um, You can see why people with imagination and a sense of the visual found this a little bit uh, uh, limiting, and you can see why there was a reaction to it. Um, But the reaction was so total as to sweep away all memories of such places, and even recently, uh, uh, Often, not in this case, but often the clergy who have charge of these places uh, kind of look upon them as kind of uh, albatrosses, and they have to apologize for them because they're uh, that they that they the clergy feel they are presiding over uh, Presbyterian type churches, or or uh, even in some cases, uh, um, like the original St. Paul's Richmond, almost uh, looks like a. Uh, like a Baptist church, sort of a high-class version of First Baptist. And uh, uh, the uh, clergy, instead of uh, embracing this and seeing this as something to be uh, treasured and even worked with and really... um, go with the flow of the arrangement are often apologetic uh, unless they're um, uh, eccentric. Now, let's go down the East Coast a little bit more. Let's go to Christchurch Episcopal Broad Creek Hundred in Delaware. Now, uh, this is near the uh, town of Laurel, Delaware, and you, uh, where the c- central church is. But in colonial times, the farmers all lived outside Laurel, and the most of the people they'd get there usually by. Um, by boat uh, would find themselves to a convenient place on the river and then they'd build a a church that we would think was a meeting house but to them it was their Episcopal church and uh, uh, this church Christ Church Broad Creek 100 was built in this way and you have to go to Laurel and check in with the nice people there at the parish church and somebody is either willing to give you a map or more likely maybe to go out with you as they did with Mary and me and drive out there it's three or four miles outside town and there you come in a field, a large barn-looking wooden building uh, with clear glass windows, very simple, uh, shuttered, and the shutters are opened, and you walk up a kind of um, small, almost ladder to get into the church through two doors, and you open up, and you're in this remarkable pine interior without without a drop of paint, without 
any elaboration, and it's just a very large, almost like a stable, it feels like, but of these high box pews from the uh, 1700s with a high pulpit. You have to look very carefully to see the altar. It's a kind of a holy table. It's there, but you have to look, and what you see is a completely simple and unelaborated church interior with uh, uh, not even a cross, nothing. It could be a, it could be uh, of, a, of a much lower church denomination with this beautiful high pulpit. It's rural, simple, pine, classical, in the middle of a field near Laurel, Delaware. And you could almost take this as your, as your uh, ideal case of the ethos of a church that uh, was... Uh, uh, a place where people would meet, would gather, would get to know each other, would talk things over. Would uh, the minister would come riding on his uh, on his uh, horse and come in and recite the morning prayer service. These were devout people who lived uh, from season to season and rain uh, thunderstorm to thunderstorm. And uh, if it was a a person of conviction, uh, uh, and usually it was because whoever was the ordained head of the parish had had to go in a boat all the way back to England for you know th- three months to get ordained by some bishop who who wasn't doing it with who, who could only f- uh, be condescending to this frontier bumpkin who came in from Laurel Delaware um, in the middle of the 1700s and then he'd sail back hoping to make it uh, get into uh, um, uh, Wilmington, Delaware, and debark and go back to his parish, ordained. So you had to have a convinced man here. And Christ Church Broad Creek 100 in the middle of a field is a is a cinematic case in point of this sensibility. Now let's move over just a minute to St. Peter's, Philadelphia. St. Peter's, Philadelphia is um, is a funny story told. We look at it today and we say, my gosh, this is this is as low church, word-centered, pulpit-based as almost you could find by contemporary standards, uh, even as of 1870 it was that way. Um, but that's not how it was seen. It was actually the high church parish of uh, of that area of uh, Philadelphia uh, near Chestnut Hill it was the it was the uh, it was the the high church area uh, a parish uh, not the low church the low church was called uh, St Paul's and uh, uh, we that church still exists but it's now a, a building uh, that houses the uh, social services and mission department of the diocese of uh, of Pennsylvania at least it was when uh, Mary and I were there last we visited uh, this uh, this parish twice the low church, the preaching parish, the evangelical sort of methodistical uh, parish was uh, was uh, St. Paul's, of which the exterior remains and some marvelous old photographs of, of the people gathered around the high central pulpit looking a little bit beleaguered. You could just tell their, their style was uh, ebbing out. Um, the tide was going out on evangelical worship when this photograph was taken around 1869 or something like that. Uh, but St. Peter's... Uh, uh, remained a thriving parish and until not so long ago had a thriving school and uh, uh, carries its own, is on a square there. And um, what's striking about that, again, a little bit um, like another parish we'll talk about in uh, 
in uh, South Carolina, uh, the pulpit is uh, embedded in the west wall. There are churches, uh, reformed churches from this period in uh, Switzerland with very much this arrangement where the pulpit is embedded in the beautiful um, uh, Georgian Palladian architecture of the west wall. And directly across from it in the east of the church is the altar, which is underneath the organ. And in the, the days we're talking about, the, the, everyone would have focused on the, on the pulpit and then three times a year they would have sort of turned in their box pews and uh, gone over to uh, have uh, communion um, on the appointed feast, Christmas and Easter, and with Sunday and sometimes on Ascension Day, if you had a particularly high church minister, but really just three times a year. And St. Peter's Philadelphia is exquisite church. It's a, it's a beautiful uh, church. And there's a funny story told. There's a book called um, Yesterday with the Fathers that no one's ever, ever read or, or cares about by a fellow named uh, Newton. And he wrote uh, this in about 1910. He had grown up in the bosom of the evangelical or low church party of the Episcopal Church in uh, Philadelphia. And he uh, tells stories about the life among the sort of... um, the old uh, low church parishes there that are, are delightful. He himself became, quote, liberal as opposed to his father and his uncles who were conservative, but their approach to the church was very similar. They, they were definitely not high churchmen. And uh, one day, um, the, on a Sunday, you see, in those days, St. Peter's was high church in the sort of 18, let's say the 1840s or 50s, uh, and they'd have communion at 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning, which is now de rigueur and universal. But it wasn't then it was innovative and slightly ritualistic or Catholic. And uh, St. Peter's had the eight o'clock communion service. Uh, but just a few blocks away at St. Paul's, there was, um, um, you see the symbolism there, St. Peter's representing more the, the high church. Peter, the Vatican, the cock crowing, St. Paul representing the gospel and the word of justification by faith. And at St. Paul's, instead of having a Sunday morning early Eucharist, it would have a Sunday morning early prayer meeting. And it was just the way it was. These were Episcopal churches. And uh, so uh, it's told that in uh, some uh, brilliant Sunday morning, uh, someone tore into the uh, uh, St. Paul's church early Sunday morning prayer group and said, it's happened. A thief has stolen the communion silver of St. Peter's. They were just about to start communion and they discovered that all their communion silver had been stolen. And everyone at St. Paul's, uh, knowing they shouldn't feel this way, felt a certain note of kind of triumph that, uh, that wouldn't you know that the, the Romish-leaning St. Peter's would be, would be raided and we're okay. The divine judgment on Romish innovation. And yet, in fact, today you visit St. Peter's and it will strike you as more Protestant um, than almost any Episcopal church you'd normally find uh, uh, from here to 60. Now, uh, we're going to finish this uh, short sort of gazetteer to some of the places to visit, which still embody this uh, Protestant interior, or this Protestant ecclesiastical arrangement, which I personally have always favored and loved and adored, although I've never or rarely actually served a church which had preserved its old arrangements. And uh, sort of you, you, you Protestant is as Protestant does. Um, but nevertheless, these, these buildings have a huge hold on my imagination and sort of my romantic um, sense of what church might be, although I'm, I'm losing some of these, uh, the concern, the burning concern I used to have about this, but, but it is of interest. And you go down now to the uh, greatest um, uh, treasure of, uh, of Protestant interiors um, remaining in the United States. 
and they are three um, beautiful, small, uh, rural parishes outside of Charleston, South Carolina. And these three uh, parishes are all basically in the middle of nowhere and uh, are under now other parishes. And they're not museums. They're real churches of the Diocese of South Carolina, but they only have an official service once per year. And once per year, the the descendants of the old families who built these parishes uh, get a kind of circular letter. Now, of course, it's email. and uh, Everybody comes and they they have a service. A clergyman is hired to come in and uh, preach the service. And then uh, everybody goes gathers around the tombs of their ancestors if they have a churchyard and has lunch. Um, it's a little bit unseemly because uh, um, the clergy that are asked are modern Episcopal clergy who resent the old Protestant arrangements and are usually uh, people who believe that their whole priestly office resides in the their sacerdotal um, uh, celebration of Holy Communion and the sacraments. And so you have clergy who are often asked by people just who know them who go and immediately do a Holy Communion service for which none of these churches are actually designed and uh, insist on uh, kind of uh, tilting at windmills and kind of sheepishly uh, sort of going through the motions of trying to heighten the churchmanship and or c- c- convert these uh, uh, old patrician bumpkins, uh, church-wise that is, and uh, kind of try to, to tart it up as the old expression is, uh, at uh, the once-a-year service, where they really should be humbly following in the footsteps of others and uh, uh, putting on a cassock surplice and a um, black preaching scarf or tippet and uh, uh, reading the morning prayer service and preaching a hearty, convinced, and sincere personal sermon from these high pulpits. But, um, But in any event, uh, we've been to all these churches, and they're uh, very... Um, memorable. Uh, the most um, famous of them is called St. James Episcopal Church, Goose Creek. And uh, this is a church which uh, is um, kind of pink-white in the exterior, and you have to get a key from the custodian of both of the churchyard and the, the uh, church uh, sort of across the street, and nice family, and you get the key, and you... I just sounded like uh, Mr. Jingle in uh, Pickwick Papers. Nice family, good key, pleasant church. Um, and uh, uh, you get your key and you get into the uh, church and you're awed by what you see as you walk in on the ancient flagstones of the church, surrounded by lovely, beautiful white box pews to the left and to the right of you as you walk up the main stone aisle. Because in front of you, like a tulip on a one on one cherry wood uh, or walnut uh, column is a high pulpit that is absolutely all you see. The high pulpit is, uh, behind it, is uh, one of these beautiful Venetian windows with quite a bit of marble carving and royal arms, which are a precious holdover from the 18th century, and uh, the uh, kind of heraldic emblems of the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, which was the English Anglican missionary organization, which uh, staffed these places with clergy and supported them and sent um, silver and uh, certainly um, Bible and prayer books for these parishes and uh, usually tried to send a little money to help the church get built by the local um, farmers and, in this case, plantation uh, owners. And uh, you see um, this uh, these ornate marble cove over this columnar single 
pulpit with a beautiful wooden, um, modest but very beautifully carpentered staircase. And all you see is the pulpit. Uh, but underneath uh, is a the altar table. I don't believe the altar table is original, but it's apt. And it's the altar table for a very long time. And there used to be an altar rail around, an elliptical uh, altar rail around the uh, table under the pulpit, which is no longer there. But it, it creates a striking impression. Uh, the people in this parish came to hear a sermon that would support them, that would console them, that would strengthen them in the very demanding lives. Uh, most of these people were Huguenot settlers from France who became Anglicans, it being the local uh, sort of set established uh, colonial Protestant church, and uh, like a hand in glove uh, moved into the world of the Church of England parishes in uh, Charleston, and they built this uh, wonderful church with its tulip-like pulpit uh, against uh, the white of the window behind it and the pink and green marble um, um, above it and to the left and to the right. Now, uh, not too long a drive from uh, St. James Goose Creek is... Uh, something, a church called Pompeian Hill Chapel. Uh, they will tell you that the local people, uh, all eight of them, call it Pumpkin Hill Chapel. Uh, local uh, customs exist, but mostly in imagination in days of satellite dishes on uh, uh, universally found in rural areas uh, in places like this. Uh, and uh, uh, nevertheless, the Pompeian Hill Chapel, which was is very uh, next door to a uh, an old uh, plantation and some wonderful outbuildings. It's a, a very um, striking uh, kind of uh, setting of, of buildings uh, uh, overlooking the river because all uh, transportation up country in those days was uh, on barge or by boat up the river. And uh, Pompeian Hill Chapel is another brick a church, not as beautiful or as Jamaican uh, as uh, St. James uh, Goose Creek, but um, stolid, solid brick building with an elliptical um, east end and a West End with more of a, a box. And uh, you walk into this uh, church where there's been some subsidence and uh, whoever takes you will be raising money all the time because there's not much of a settled congregation, to say the least. But those whose families are connected with the church love it and preserve it. And there's a fund for it. And uh, this is a miracle of survival based upon isolation and demographics and history, uh, which has never been messed with. And you walk in, and in this case, you have the altar in the East End, uh, the not the original table, but uh, an apt, uh, rep similar reproduction uh, with a wonderful um, altar rail. And the proportions of the uh, apse uh, or chancel of the church with another Venetian window looking out on the river and some beautiful old trees that surround this beautiful church is just the most uh, simple Dutch kind of uh, interior you've ever seen. And uh, um, it is, be still my soul. It is well with my soul. You sit down in the pews, which are not the originals. I think some of them may, but many of them have been replaced. It's a very small space. And there on the north and the south of the interior, the altar, the east, then these pews, in this case, not box pews. They're more like uh, benches, well-carved benches facing each other in what is called college fashion, like an English college chapel in Oxford or Cambridge. And then on the west side is the pulpit, similar to the arrangement we saw in St. Peter's, Philadelphia, but much uh, more modest and intimate, and yet the pulpit is of the highest quality. <clears throat> I'm sure it was designed by the same um, joiner who uh, carved the pulpit for 
St. Michael's Church downtown. It has an eagle over it. You think you're in um, the early days of the Federal Republic, uh, but in fact, it predates that. And uh, uh, cherrywood, is it? Walnut? A cedar? I'm not sure. I don't know. Uh, but the pulpit is there with a desk underneath it. It's a two-decker pulpit and uh, uh, with uh, some symbols of... Uh, the Alpha and the Omega carved into the inlaid into the wood of the pulpit. And so you have this chaste altar and this uh, marvelous pulpit and the pews facing one another college style. And you can sit and you can ask your very nice person who's uh, uh, gotten you in or escorted you to visit this church and you say, could you give me about two days? (laughs) Could you give me about three hours in here to restore myself after the fretting of the R-Town living that we're all involved in with the supervisors supervise the supervisors and the controllers supervise the controllers of our lives and uh, we're constantly surrounded by never-failing fretting and activity. Would you please uh, let me live here for perhaps the rest of the eternity? Uh, uh, Pompeian Hill Chapel. Now, there's just one more church to mention, and that's quite a bit north, just south of the uh, town of McClellanville. You go north of Charleston. I think it's Route uh, 17. Uh, you go due north of Charleston, heading towards Georgetown, South Carolina, and you've gone too far if you reach McClellanville, which was the town where the Hurricane Hugo had its high water mark, and a town that was terribly damaged uh, during the flooding uh, caused by Hurricane Hugo years ago. But uh, sort of just before you get to McClellanville, there's a sign to uh, Santee Church. It's uh, St. James Santee. Now, you're not prepared for the ride, because now you really are in open pine barrens. You're in a low-lying area of of pine forest that goes on and on and on. It's not developed. It's not suburban in any way, shape, or form, or even ex-urban. And you go about four miles down a country road, and here's one of the few places where you really want an off-road vehicle, although you can get there. There is a real road. But forever and ever and ever, and finally on the right, you sort of do almost like a horseshoe, and finally on the right, you arrive at this church. Again, if you look carefully and know where to look, you're on a river, but you don't see that. And the church is an absolutely perfect uh, Georgian Palladian um, brick church, but it's a little more distinguished than the other two in one respect. It has a uh, portico with uh, columns uh, made out of uh, uh, brick and tabby, which is an oyster shell kind of filler, and uh, wonderfully curved bricks. And it has a portico with the old uh, mid-18th century columns still preserved. And you have to go, however, through the side door. It's usually open, but uh, again... Now people are more nervous about uh, potential vandalism, rightfully so, and so you have to find a key. But the two times that Mary, three, three times that uh, Mary and I have visited St. James Santee, uh, it's been open, and you go in and you immediately see facing you a, 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 an altar table straight ahead of you, or do I have it wrong? It's either the, 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 the floor is brick, the original 18th century brick. The box pews are wood and the original ones. The orientation of the church is a, you don't quite know where the pulpit was, was originally and where the altar was, but the way they've sort of configured it uh, with these portico outside, which looks like the main door, is I believe the pulpit is now on the left as you enter, and the altar, which uh, has uh, not the original uh, or table, very simple, is straight ahead of you. In any event, um, whoever the modern people 
people uh, who have loved this church, uh, everybody's always been a little confused by the orientation of the church in relationship to the entrance, which should be under the portico. So it may be a bit of a trick by the original architect. You have the original church in an isolated setting with the original box pews uh, and, um, but, and the original chancel, but you're not quite sure where the pulpit was supposed to be and where the holy table was. But the mystique of it in the middle of nowhere with these beautiful, again, original um, clear glass windows is again a place you'd like to stay forever unlike Pompeian Hill Chapel which is more open to the trees and to the sky uh, you feel a little bit more humid and so you might not want to stay there forever like Pompeian Hill Chapel but you are struck by the absolute anachronism of this preserved jewel St. James Santee and then you compose yourself you you say a prayer of blessing goodbye a beautiful space and God bless you until we meet again at the foot of at the foot of Jesus until we meet again like that wonderful scene in War and Remembrance with Polly Bergen and her children and Victor Pug Henry singing until we meet again you pull out in your car and you drive back to Charleston or Georgetown or wherever your destination and so you've seen these uh, beautiful uh, churches there are others in the United States but I've uh, given to you as best I could the ones that uh, have made the greatest impression on Mary and me over the years and are fully accessible and uh, are all um, uh, really uh, still churches they're not museums although King's Chapel of Boston has the slight feel more of a museum than a, a place of of worship, but it is a place of worship, and and a, a service there could be wonderful. Uh, and I leave you uh, with this little uh, um, talk and gazetteer of places to visit, which evoke a lost world, a world that ought to be known more about, a world of a of a hearty uh, and convinced sermon, ideally. Uh, a group of people gathering together for solace, comfort, and strength in the midst of very hard uh, and very challenging outdoor frontier lives, threatened lives, more threatened by the weather and flooding and the lightning than anything else, and disease, and uh, um, a, uh, a mystique that has been almost completely swept away in the rush to be what I regard as more... Um, um, secondarily or superficially religious, visually religious, rather than internally composed. That's my perspective. You can take that or leave it. But visit these churches, and I believe you'll be enriched. Thank you so very much, and God bless.